flying in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot and a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can holla ass and travel with portable speakers playing Boz Skaggs. Wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian on late night sitcoms syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Hello, mes amis. Comment ça va? Welcome back to The Debrief. I am your host, Brianna Joy Gray, coming to you following an excellent episode of Bad Faith Podcast today about the ongoing Canadian trucker protests. I was joined by a pretty Canadian panel, although insufficiently Canadian for some. Uh, the non-Canadian party was, I think, a pretty important addition in the form of 2016 vice presidential candidate Ajamu Baraka, activist and also spokesperson for the Black Alliance for Peace, uh, also joined by Q and Amine, who you know and love for many episodes of Bad Faith Podcast and who also has his own show here on Colin and also Luke Savage, Jacobin, journalist and also co-host of the Michael and Me podcast. They were able to give some combination of first-person accounting and in-depth analysis of Canadian politics and some reflection on the comparison between what right-wing activists or conservative activists or however you want to characterize them, activists managed to make a certain kind of impact in a way that the left seems to be reluctant to do. I would like to talk with you about all of that and also this interesting question that came up during the podcast, but wasn't so thoroughly explored, which is, are these mandates worth it? I know that a lot of people have civil libertarian objections to the mandates on their face, but even if you don't, do moments like these trucker protests cause you to reflect on the utility of mandates when there's diminishing scientific benefit on the other end? I see the queue has already formed, so let's go ahead and start talking. Serene, what's on your mind? Hello. Serene, coming in hot, hot and windy. Where are you? Where are you right now? I'm on my daily walk. I'm sorry, it's very windy here. Is there any way you can cover up the microphone a little bit and um, shield our ear, our eardrums from some of that dust? Is this better? Not really, but let's get in and out. What, what's on your mind? Yeah, I, I'll be quick. Um, I the mandate thing is tough. It it seems unenforceable, even if we all agree that have to compel people it just doesn't work i forgot who made the point but it's like all these people who didn't sign up to be bouncers are bouncers and it's just like if the left's goal is to have multi everything solidarity like and to kill the cop in all of our heads does it make sense that we're all like inadvertently signing up to be cops it just i I don't see a way around it i think we have enough evidence for two years of people's behavior during this pandemic and yeah let's try something else yeah i I hear that serene let me know if anybody objects uh but i think that's a good point are we just making more cops out of us all i've personally observed that as i travel in uh more kind of affluent space but if i enter an affluent space where it's kind of presumed that everyone is liberal and coastal everyone gets very lax with their masks in a way 
that seems incongruent with the rhetoric coming out of that same political cohort. So thank you, Serene. Kusha, what do you say about all this? Hello, Brianna. Um, thanks for having me this afternoon. Yeah, what do you what do you have to say about all of this? Absolutely. So what I want to do is I want to thank you firstly for what you had, I believe it was yesterday when you had people from the Revolutionary Blackout Network, I believe it's called, Compton J and others. Uh, I think that was a great job that you did by bringing in those who have a lot of dissent with you. And I wanted to begin by giving you a lot of credit on that because I do, as I said, the first time I spoke with you, I believe you're one of the best about the good faith critiques and discussions and disagreements. And so one of the things, uh, are you about to say something? Yeah, I was going to say thank you. I appreciate that. Absolutely. So one of the things I want to raise, which, again, admittedly is not too connected with the Canadian trucker issue, but I think in one sense it is connected with foreign policy analysis, at least, because it does happen a lot in the left space, especially in the U.S. left. And one of the biggest tensions I see in the U.S. left is that of anti-imperialism. And it comes in many ways, in many shapes, in many countries, whether we're talking about Syria or the Islamic Republic of Iran, with the suffering of Palestinians in Gaza or Hezbollah in, in Lebanon. And um, I really want to name it specifically because one of your friends, Katie Halper and Aaron Maté, this morning they were very reluctant to have me even raise these questions in an, in an episode of their call-in where they were talking about how the mainstream media does not allow dissident voices to come on. And people Kusha, disagree. Here, here's the thing, though. This isn't an episode of call-in about that. And I think you'll be really happy to call in on Thursday when we will have a foreign policy related episode to talk about that evening. But do you have any remarks about today's episode, this, sure. the trucker convoy? Absolutely, I do. And I appreciate you mentioning that to me uh, for Thursday, and I'll do my best to come. And I do have a comment on that, which is about the, the truckers. So thank you for raising that. And it's the fact that I very much have, uh, I think, a similar critique as Crystal, your friend Crystal Ball does, which is that I think as she raised, the issue that has led Justin Trudeau and the other power brokers of the liberal establishment in Canada to crack down so forcefully is that capitalism, specifically U.S. capitalism and its close associate of Canadian capitalism, were threatened. That being said, I do think there's a large, and I mean, there's a very notable element within the, the, um, the group who is a very, uh, you know, at the forefront of this, which has a lot of racism and xenophobia and white supremacist element, like that gentleman, I don't remember his name, but the one, he's the one with the Confederate flags. Uh, there was one caller earlier to, uh, this morning who was mentioning him on Kitty Halper's program. But I think that's very important to distinguish that this is also present and that the motive necessarily of many of those involved in the truckers movement may not necessarily always be in line, but I think it's the act of the protest that needs to be um, protected at all costs, whether it's even for something like this vaccine mandate area. I think it's the fact that people need to have that freedom of assembly around the world protected. Otherwise, what can happen is, as we see in the United States, um, you have a lot of people get tear gassed and police beat down people. Or you can have it like in Syria, where Bashar al-Assad starts murdering people and mowing them down like his brother Maher starts doing. We cannot allow the United States or Canada to ever get to the point where it is like in Syria or in the Islamic Republic, which in 2019 killed 1,500 plus people in just November 2019. We can never allow that. And at the same time, um, it's very evident that Justin Trudeau and the liberal establishment of Canada are not acting necessarily in the best interest of all the people throughout in all their issues. 
Um, and that's my uh, say about this. I really love to hear your reflections on that, Brianna. Thank you for the yeah. time. Thank you, Kusha. Yeah, I think this is probably a good time to just go ahead and play a clip, as I sometimes do at the top of these episodes, so people who haven't listened can orient themselves. Um, Q had a good comment to this effect. And what was interesting about this comment we're about to hear is that he referenced the idea that a balancing test has been put in effect to try to make sure that the encroachment on civil liberties are as limited as possible. This is, you know, an idea that, you know, we have in American constitutional law, this idea that, you know, you're supposed to basically measure the government's need to do something in state interest against the infringement on the individual to assess whether or not something is actually a constitutional violation. Right. Mm -hmm. But what seems absent from the conversation, broadly speaking, is what a balancing test might look like that's actually doing its job in a way that these emergency act orders in Canada seem to be obviously an overreach in the eyes of everyone involved in the conversation, including those who are very critical of the protests themselves. So let's take a quick listen and then I'll get uh, some more comments in here. Anybody with any common sense is saying that all the protesters are white people or the protesters are white supremacists. There are like people on the sort of like the, the big L liberal side of things that are making the protesters out to be like uh, wall-to-wall white supremacists, but I think that's uh, both incredibly short-sighted and rather foolish just from an optics perspective. One of the big problems that they've had is that they've been trying to paint the protesters as being white supremacists, which would then make it okay for Trudeau to have passed uh, the Emergency Act, or at least invoked the Emergency Act, which you, which you can get into in a bit, by, by positioning it as Trudeau fighting white supremacy by invoking the Emergency Act, then whatever measures are necessary to clear out the protesters are fine in the eyes of Canadians who do support that. But the big problem is almost immediately you can see where the backlash comes in, that uh, the Emergency Act, as well as the uh, the repercussions thereof, uh, where it comes to the financial industry and uh, companies that are collecting money on behalf of other protests, may then begin to exercise some of their own discretion as to whether they're going to support those protests. So, for example, uh, Indigenous land defense protests in Canada have already come under attack uh, from GoFundMe in the sense that uh, GoFundMe is now freezing payments and refunding uh, donations to the donors because they may find themselves once again under scrutiny by the Canadian government if they facilitate payments to Indigenous land defenders. That's already happened. And that's something that most people that were looking at it from a more nuanced point of view were saying, hey, hang on a second. If you are wholeheartedly supporting our government invoking the Emergency Act and bringing the financial institutions under the auspices of FinTrack, which is Canada's essentially like a national accounting agency, if you start doing that, then you create a chill among principal dissenters and protesters and those who support them, you create a chill where people are now unwilling to engage in protest because they may find themselves on the wrong side of the law. And then people who support them might find themselves disconnected from the Canadian banking system. All right. I, I remember I mispronounced your name last time, uh, but I don't remember in which direction. Rika or Rika. Can you remind me? Hi, Bri. It's Rika. Rika. How are you doing, yes. Rika? I'm I'm good. I'm good. Just charged up on all these amazing episodes you've been having. Oh, well, thinking thank a lot you. about them. Yeah. Um, so, so what about this but, one piqued your interest today? Yeah. Well, I think there was a lot of conversation around kind of the comparisons between the trucker protest and kind of the protest that flowed forth after the murder of George Floyd. 
Mm-hmm. And the conversation then kind of went into like comparing like success and what was more meaningful or not. And kind of, I think there was also a bit about um, how, how do we, why, why don't we do this kind of militancy on the left or mm-hmm. not? Um, I, and I just have to say it, it is there. It's I, the militancy is so there. I just, I think that there's a lot of, um, the media does a really, really good job of doing exactly what that person just said, that clip that you just played of really painting anyone who comes out as a, as a militant protester, um, as being some type of, uh, white supremacist or someone that's nefarious or, or it doesn't have the interest of kind of like an overall, overall message in mind. And, and to that end, I was just thinking about how I, I think a huge obstacle, because I also share kind of with the envy of like why I wish we saw, we see, we would see more um, leftist protests and protest activity and actions that are escalating to that level of militancy. Um, and I think the left has, in the broad left, whatever that means, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it needs to actually embrace a uh, a diversity of tactics, like truly needs to actually embrace diversity of tactics and start developing a practice of not like, you know, not trying to be like, oh, they're protesting wrong all the damn time. Cause then that, that will, that really like, that can really diminish um, not only participation, but like actually recognizing significance and progress I have for, I mean, so I, I was, I lived in Minneapolis when, mm. you know, everything was happening with George Floyd and you know, there was, there was a lot of, and I mean, the governor did exactly that, escalated and sent in the National Guard, uh, claiming that there were, you know, white supremacists and, you know, anarchists. And there certainly may have been those elements there and definitely anarchists for sure. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the, the, the bottom line was that people were in general supportive of a lot of the actions that were taken including the burning down of the police precinct there. So I think like, yeah, you know, that's a, that's you know. a really important point. Cause I think that has gotten a little lost in the annals of history here that right after that police station was burned down, it had a majority of public support, like the burning down of the police station. Exactly. Supported by the majority of the, the public. Yeah, when, when yeah. people, when people talk about, Oh, you know, defund the police is unpopular. You're not going to get me because <laughs> I'm old enough to remember the summer of 2020 or the spring of 2020 when all of it was overwhelmingly popular. And that was before the media turned and people are forgetting the sequence of events. Your your earlier point, Rika, about how maybe, you know, there is energy on the left is an interesting one because it might be the case that the difference between the right and the left is that our media sphere, our political sphere, our interlocutors are more timid about actually backing up the people when they do rise up. 100%. Whereas on the right, they'll full on storm the Capitol. They're sheepish for like a few days about it. And then everyone rallies the troops and it's like, no, 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 that was a legitimate protest. We're going to stick the landing. And they've learned from Trump that if you don't apologize and you own something, then the public responds by understanding that the thing that is being criticized isn't actually something to be ashamed of. Meanwhile, our politicians are acting like us pointing out that there's no correlation between increasing police funding and increasing public safety is us being a terrorist. Right, exactly. And I I do think it goes a, a little bit beyond to even just the media landscape around how they frame or, or whether the timidness around perhaps like interlocutor supporting what's happening. It's, it is also with elected officials who... Mm-hmm. Um, who 
have a history of even coming from the left or born out of movement to ascend into positions of power. We had um, various people on the Minneapolis City Council who were condemning some of the actions that protesters were taking, um, some of whom are <laughs> uh, very much hold identities that a lot of people like to deploy as um, uh, signatories of progress, right? Mm. And, you know, and I think that is um, the the problem with that is, you know, like, it, it's, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's not just the media, right? It's, mm-hmm. there's this, there's, there's something that really, um, people are really afraid, of course, of course, are really afraid of violence, right? The chaos that can come with violence mm-hmm. um, and the destruction that can possibly happen. Um, but it, it makes it really difficult. Um, I think as, as an organizer who, who I, I want, I, you know, we want to hold people quote unquote accountable. Um, and of course we want people to be held accountable in ways initially that aren't, that if they respond to as such, but that aren't violent, right? Like we, we, we obviously want, we don't want to just jump out the gate and like start burning up right. everything everywhere. We, there is a natural escalation that occurs, right? But I think you can't, um, you can't continue to expect people to be civil uh, if you're not actually being held accountable. And so I think, but that's why I think in general, though, I see is that even in organizations, organizers across organizations or um, movement-based organizations, there there will always be like, oh, well, you shouldn't have done this or you should have do that. There's always like these critiques around strategy, around mm. not doing it right and all this stuff. And it's like, you know what? Like you, if you don't agree with it, then you don't do it. Right. If you don't agree with it, then you don't participate yeah. and go organize your own damn thing. Right. But and, yeah. but if we're all on the same team, we got to we got to be like we got to understand that we we can work with with whatever we're doing. We can, you know, so I don't know. Those are just some of the thoughts I had. No, I appreciate that. Look, it reminds me of what Sean Campbell was saying on the you know BLM episode we did recently, juxtaposing the. A local BLM chapter in California that was going to that was mobilizing a counter protest to white supremacists, and the main and the national org that was like, no, don't do that. It's too risky. It's too there's too exactly. much potential for violence. Let's do this UGG boot electric slide event instead. And it's interesting <laughs> because there there are a couple of things going on there. It's this presumption that the fact of violence erupting is conflated with uh, endorsing violence from the group. Exactly. Right, because it's not yeah. like the counter protests were going in there guns a blazing, but right. it's, it's almost like a liability issue. Oh, I don't want, I can't endorse you doing something that would put you in harm's way, which I don't know is, I don't know that that's the role of an activist organization. Moreover, there's this conflation between property destruction and violence. Right. That exactly. really does a disservice exactly. to the left. And the last yeah. thing that I was thinking of when you were talking was that we sometimes talk about these civil rights protests as nonviolent protests, right. there was violence. <laughs> there was so it was much. enacted against the protesters. <laughs> yes, like, exactly. There's hella violence. Yeah. And yeah. you can just imagine a world where the, the this BLM leadership was like, no, don't sit at the lunch counter because some of these, you know, racists are going to attack you. Like, no, they trained how to respond to the kind of reactions that they knew they were going to get. They trained to respond to what happens if someone spits on you, what happens when they jeer on you, what happens when they pour the milkshake up down on your head, what happens when they hit you. What should you do? Right. How do you get out of jail? All of those kinds of tactics. And 
you know, you do hear obviously organizers and protesters talking about those kinds of tactics, you know, writing phone numbers on their body and, and bail funds and all of that sort of thing. But that conversation has quieted down a large part, it seems to me, from my perspective, from the days of even the Trump era, where people seem to have that willingness to put their bodies on the line because they all believe they're a part of some greater movement against fascism. And yeah. I, I remember all my lawyer friends rushing to the airport, you know, during the Muslim ban. And it felt it felt good. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and so I agree with you that the energy is there, but it's just been completely misdirected. Yeah, I think it's I think it's hard when, you know, so as someone who is, you know, I lived in Minneapolis from like 2014 all the way up until recently. Um, and like every year you know, someone was being murdered by the police. Every year we were organizing, we were in the streets every year. And this is on top of literally the organizing work that, you know, many of us are doing for our jobs as well, right? So it's mm-hmm. like, there's a lot, you know, and so I I, I am sim- I'm 100% sympathetic to the kind of need to rest, right? The need to kind of pull back and rest and find reprieve where you can get it. And it makes sense that there's a temptation to want to like simmer down a little bit when the urgency doesn't feel as apparent, even though it is like, it's very urgent that we continue to um, be militant and mobilized. Um, But we, I think part of how that can happen, Brie, is, you know, we don't have really good infrastructure to develop, um, continue like leaders to kind of follow as well right like mm-hmm. you know you, you really a lot of organizers right when we talk we talk about how um draining we come in we come in guns a blazing and then we're like burnt to a toast by the time we're done doing what we're doing right mm-hmm. after like three or four years and there really is um some need to like have infrastructure developed that can help continue to feed people into the movement organizations we have and the movements that we build um and to continue to build the work that we do as we move when into different political terrain where you have potentially people in Congress who might be a little bit more scared shitless if leftists came on their front lawn, right? You know, on top of the right. Well, let's, right? So like, let's, let's talk about the reality of that because I remember during the force of vote protest, there was some conversation about whether or not the, the, the uh, protest in DC should go to AOC's apartment. And that was a strategic question. You know, yeah. are we going to go there? Someone, you know, there was an address in hand. <laughs> and the question was, are we going to go there? Or is that going to be, is there, there going to be too much backlash? Because, you know, she is a person who is under attack a great deal from bad faith actors. And there are people who make credible threats on her life all the time. And, you know, the narrative is going to be from the left, from liberals, you guys are attacking this young, vulnerable woman of color and not going after any of these other people. I mean, you know, the address that was had was hers, not the other people. And that was where the decision was made. Um, But we ultimately decided not to do it for strategic reasons. But like that's that the part of that strategic decision is based on the fact that there is no one who was ever going to back us up in our media sphere. Right. No yeah. one was going to, I mean, there was no, there was no right. going to be like Chris Hayes saying, well, I appreciate that this is a delicate situation, but ultimately they requested an audience with ASC and she ignored them. So this is just classic civil disobedience. Like that was never like, <laughs> I, I'll yeah. see a cow on the moon first before that happens. Right. I, well, but I think what you're revealing too is how these, 
the choices around militant tactics or more militant approaches are are ones that are done right in conversation with people who are organizing who are usually on organizing committees of some kind right like they're they're these choices get made like this you know and and i know what you're saying your broader point is like who would support that right which is what we were ultimately talking about but I do think it's important that people continue to, I mean, one thing that, because this, what came up on your call this weekend, and then I'll, I'll definitely stop because I know there's a queue coming here. So, um, you know, there was a lot of, I was listening to your conversation with the revolutionary black network folks. And um, I was, again, I was like, just in love with it, soaking it up because it was just like, here we have kind of a wonderful example of how we can have principal disagreement and still kind Mm -hmm. of engage in conversation with each other on the left I'm not really invested with that on the right but but the point for me was there was a lot of like well you know I forget what his who his name was but he was saying like electoralism's dead whatever right you know Mm -hmm. like he was just like like Mm -hmm. yeah he was just going so hard against it and I was like listen like you don't have to do it you don't have Mm -hmm. to do it you that is if that is not your political project then you need to find the people that will support you in your political project. The group, you know, form your cadre, go out there. Well, let me let me play devil, base, devil's you know? advocate for Jay. Cause I think, I mean, I don't want to speak for him, but I think that his argument would be, and an argument that he made, I think was that there is energy, you know, people have limited resources of energy. You were just mentioning how quickly people burn out in the organizing yeah. days that there's energy that is being invested in these electoral projects that serve to blunt, people's attention to other kinds of things, be they mutual aid or other no kinds doubt. of activities. Mm-hmm. And it is true. Like, I mean, I, the, the part of me that bulked a little bit is the idea that there's, you know, kind of like seeding nefarious attentions, like, oh, I'm sheep. I mean, really, Marianne was like, will you do this? And I was like, sure, Marianne. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was as much thought as went into it. Um, mm-hmm. And also, I, I, if this was going to go down, I wanted to make sure that somebody was asking the kind of questions that the skeptical audience that I know that I speak to and that I share skepticism with would want to ask of these candidates, like, how are you going to be different? Um, But I I do look, I, 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 well, I am to um, uh, executive function. uh, Like I'm too bad at executive function to be putting together, (laughs) getting together an event like Marianne Williamson just did. Uh But, there's a world where I very much would like to see a third party event like that, or I very much like to see an event that focused on something else like a general strike. I participated in the general strike live stream event, you know, a few mm-hmm. months ago, whenever that was. And I do think that there's something to be said for having conversations that encourage folks who are planning these kinds of things to say, Hey, Marianne, like maybe you should do one that's more issue focused or movement focused and, and get, you know, Crystal to lend us the studio again for something like that. And I, I appreciate that pushback because honestly, there are sometimes it is like a kind of um, subconscious emphasis on the familiar, on the electoral, on the oh, it's midterms. And as a former journalist, like I, I'm in that mindset as well. And I, as much as I might bristle a little bit and be a little defensive, I really do appreciate Jay asking the basic question. Okay, well, why does it always seem to be this kind of event that sucks up all the energy and right. gets all this focus? Yeah, no, I, I want, and I want to be clear, I'm like, actually very much in alignment with Jan. <laughs> uh, but I, I think, I, I just in my, ex, 
so there is something to be said about organizing people who have platforms to push them to do things, right? That mm-hmm. is strategic. That is, that is, that we, people should be doing that work for sure. I, and I support that, but I think the, there's this, I think people are oftentimes waiting for certain people to do certain things that they want to do or want to see mm-hmm. in the world happen when it comes to organizing work. Mm-hmm. And I think the reality of how organizing work happens is you got to just do it. Like if you, and there was someone who has mentioned that organizing is like a privilege, I think, you know, and, mm-hmm. and to the end that paid professional organizers are it, being in that kind of role is a privilege. I agree with that. But people in across the world, across the world, um, who are incredibly poor, who have very, very lack of access to so many resources that we have here as paid organizers or even not. Um, find ways to create incredible revolutionary movements and activity um, and it's work. And I, so what I'm just trying to articulate is that part of the truck, going back to the trucker thing, mm-hmm. um, you know, we, we, we have the opportunity to do that. We absolutely have the opportunity to do that. We have the energy there to do that. Part of where I think we miss the boat is we don't encourage people to embrace diversity of tactics on the left as a whole. I don't think we do that. Mm -hmm. Um, We're all trying to clamor to have the right thing to do at the right time and with the right people with the right, you know, and have it be this one, this version of it. Mm -hmm. And then I think the other piece of it is we need to encourage people to organize on all levels wherever they're at and from the workplace to their, you know, in the same way that the right does, to be honest, the right foments that the culture wars, as you all have pointed out, to encourage people to organize, not necessarily so structured in there how they do it, but what they end up doing is end up participating in their institutions, their workplaces, whatever it is. Yeah, they capitalize on what organically is exciting to people too. Or, exactly. you know, I'm not saying the CRT was entirely organic. Obviously, you've covered Christopher Rufo and stuff on the show. But that's what was so dispiriting about Force of Vote. Sorry, I'm going here again. Was that, <laughs> like it or not, it felt like it was ex- sincerely ins- exciting to people. before, yeah. In that, like, bl- yeah. brief blush of time before the majority report staff came out against it for reasons. Um, like everyone was like, holy shit, like Bernie's over, but here's something else. Finally, for the first time, like 10 months later Mm -hmm. in the middle of the pandemic, everything's so bleak, but here's, here's a glimmer of something that could actually be done. We do have some power. We do have some leverage and to not feel that energy and want to say, let's make the most of it. You know, even if you think the plan is not the best, you know, David Sirota had his critique. I said, great, David. Let's add your asks to the pile. You you know a lot about yeah. Congress and the Hill. I'll defer to you. Let's do that stuff too. Sounds great. The more the merrier. Yes, and. So yeah. I agree with you. We, we need to be yes, anding this more. And I appreciate you calling in, Rika. Yeah. Thanks, Bree. All right, Max. What's on your mind? Um, hey, Brianna, can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Loud and clear. Um, yeah, I, I really agreed with uh, the point that uh, – Kusha, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, mm-hmm. uh, made earlier about that when we talk about these trucker convoy protests and all of the things going on with Canada and the Canadian government that we need to be focusing on protecting freedom of speech and the right to organize and assemble because something that I've seen on, you know, from some quote unquote left figures on online recently, like Vosh or Hassan Piker has been like, well, you know, they basically highlight the 
maybe the worst of the protesters, um, like those sporting Confederate flags or swastikas or something like that, mm-hmm. and kind of generalize and make it as if this the protests are about uh, white supremacy. And, I, and, and they kind of, and by doing that, maybe they, you know, speak out slightly against the authoritarian measures taken by the Canadian government, but they'll kind of dismiss it as not a big deal because of the evils within the protests. And I think that's a dangerous uh, rhetoric to be spreading, in my opinion. But the, the question that I had for you, um, you know, also your thoughts on that, but um, something that I've been kind of like struggling with on my opinions on vaccine mandates is um, like some on the left say that they're against mandates on principle, uh, which I understand, right? Like you don't want to give the employer or the government more power over the uh, working class. Right. Um, So I understand that perspective, but I I always say that like, yeah, I'm, I lean into that more, but if there was a virus that was very deadly and the only way we could get out of it was by getting, you know, 90% or everyone vaccinated. And we knew that then I wouldn't say like, well, let everyone die and don't get it right. So, yeah. but I also think that if we did have that scenario where COVID, let's say we're, we're like a polio and we're, it was leaving people paralyzed all over the country, you know, and a really visible disability, yeah. I mean, it really sucks that invisible disabilities get no recognition. So I just want to say that, but they don't as we, as evidenced by everything. And I think that if we lived in a world where it was like a polio style virus, we wouldn't be needing mandates. People would be, you know, pushing, pushing each other over to the side, like the things crawling the wall in World War Z in order to get a, a vaccine. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that a lot of the, the unrest and the resistance towards mandates is kind of one that, that people don't really feel that COVID is like adequate to mandate, you know, workers to get this or they'll get fired or, or fined or whatever in certain countries. Um, and also that there's like, hugely corrupted, uh, corrupted, uh, incentives, um, in the, in the system of the vaccine distribution, right? Like Pfizer made 32 billion or something like that, Mm. uh, last year from just the vaccine alone, I think. Um, yeah. And, and and then most of the time, whenever there's a new variant, the very first person to say that we need a new booster shot is like an executive at one of those companies. And then you have like mainstream media, kind of talking about it as though it's like a, a like a legit scientific consensus that we need right. not putting their credentials on the screen and all that sort of thing yeah yeah exactly and, yeah. and the thing that i don't understand about the purpose of mandates because i talked to some pretty smart people on um the left like uh i have some professors that are you know describe themselves as marxists and stuff like that and I'll, and i'll kind of voice these concerns about the mandates to me and they'll get like almost like angry at me in a way um and the thing that I don't understand about the vaccine mandates is if COVID is endemic, right, it's not going to go away. Um, and people that, at least with Omicron, people that get the vaccine or that are vaccinated or boosted or whatever are almost equally as likely to get it and spread it. Maybe not equally as likely to get sick, but equally as likely to get it and spread it as someone unvaccinated. So like, even when we like remove the the worker leftist principle, I, I don't understand the purpose of the mandates when the when we know the virus works the way it does. You, do you know? Do you understand what I mean? Yes. No. I was going to say earlier that the the Omicron is a real game changer here, because the whole kind of moral linchpin of the mandate was that even if you are really willing to assume the risk, you were 
endangering your community by not getting vaccinated. Yeah, exactly. And if we live in a world where Omicron means that even Fauci is saying everyone's going to get it, which I still resist, I gotta say, you know, as a privileged podcaster who hasn't left her house in three days. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, but like, you know, if everyone's going to get it and uh, you're as able to spread it, Basically, whether or not you're vaccinated. I mean, I think there's some subtle differences there in your transmissibility, but it's still, it's like. It, it's like not enough to actually curb the spread that's, of the virus. That's the thing. That that's like the fundamental question. Yeah. Like how, how much does it have to help to, to, be, to warrant a federal mandate, right? And this is, we're getting back yeah. to this na- narrowly tailored thing again. Okay, well, maybe if it helped a lot. Well, then it would be narrowly, it would be, you know, a mandate would be sufficiently ta- uh, tailored to the government's interest of not having this pandemic spread if it only helps a little bit then the interest in having the civil liberties to reject a mandate to reject a vaccine or a booster outweigh it and that is just that's the truth it really all comes down to that number and omicron really shifted that balance so that's why when we look at the something like the truckers protest and you have canada where 90 percent of these truckers are vaccinated and it's only applying to truckers going over the canadian border and it just seems like such a minuscule you know, the, the scientific or uh, public health benefit seems so minuscule. And if there's a doctor in the room who can tell me otherwise, please tell me. But uh, as compared to the amount of political backlash that has come out of it, and then compared to the now civil liberties overreaches that are coming down the pike from Trudeau, it just seems like this is not a battle that maybe folks should be trying to pick. And are there lessons then for us in America and the way ways that we talk about implementing whether it's, you know, masking paradigms or these other kinds of things. Because like I said, I have noticed now that I've been out in the world a little bit more recently that the very people who act big and bad about masking and, oh, my God, like I've taken a couple trips to Virginia where you don't have to mask and everyone like rolls their eyes, like look at these people in Virginia not masking. But I'm like, you were just sitting in this cocktail bar like in DC, like you just flashed your little passport, but everyone was very comfortable sitting in this cocktail bar with each other. This is not like, there's much more space in this, this crate and barrel warehouse store <laughs> than there was in this, this unmasked bar that you had no qualms with. And it really does seem very political, even among people who I, I know know better. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Like, I live in um, Los Angeles, and, uh, like, if you go into a place unmasked that, like, a supermarket or, I don't know, for example, like, there will be certain people uh, that will look at you or, or, you know, maybe say something and, and uh, like, shun you in a way. But then when you go to a restaurant, it'll be fully packed to full capacity, and then everyone – no one is wearing a mask, and then no one cares. So it's just, like – it's almost like it's a – um it's become so politicized that it's almost really hard, at least for me, to kind of get uh, a scientific understanding of the virus yes. and what we should actually be doing about it, you know? It's hard to figure out what's true. And, like, and I was saying this on the Joe Rogan episode. You can you can say that Joe Rogan's audience is so big that his responsibility is that he needs to just be sitting down with three scientists and, you know, one of those enormous MIT computers, like, just downloading knowledge all day. And that he can't get off the hook. But honestly, it, it is it is a full-time job figuring out the truth about one of these issues, much less having to do multiple shows a week about these issues. And yeah. it, it, it's not like you can just Google and get a result. It's not like I have my Encyclopedia Britannica from 1991 sitting on the shelf that holds all the impartial answers. It's gen, genuinely unclear. You can't 
just say what the New York Times says. You can't say what, trust what Dr. Fauci says. You can't, who's the authority? Oh, I have to go get a medical degree now and like page through all these JAMA articles and then some of the JAMA articles are messed up. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally, yeah, I totally agree. And it's, I, I, I guess, I, I just wish that there was a more honest, um, less politicized debate around like what actually is helping people not spread the virus do it are the numbers that different from like like for like uh jimmy Dore did a good segment um that in 2018 uh there because like a lot of the arguments that people that are pro vaccine mandate will say is like oh you need to get vaccinated because if you're unvaccinated you're just going to clog up the hospitals and and mm-hmm. then people that are sick with real disease whether it be COVID or something else um won't be able to get seen in the hospital but like it seems from what i've read that that's less of an issue with COVID and more of an issue with our for-profit healthcare system mm. uh, not investing in ICU beds because they're not very profitable. Mm. Uh, like New York, I think they actually cut the ICU amount of ICU beds that they had during the pandemic. Wow. Um, I, don't quote me on that. I, I might that might have been before, so I don't want to like you know uh, say any misinformation, but. Uh, Get me in trouble. No, look, (laughs) New York has thrown away 20,000 hospital beds. This is an article from March 17th, 2020. So the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. At the beginning of the pandemic. And in 2018, uh, during flu season, people were, uh, or hospitals all over the country were treating people in tents outside because they didn't have enough hospital beds. So like, it, it, it seems to me like there's just not an honest conversation going around, going around in any kind of mainstream circles. Like, like this is, I mean, obviously here we can kind of have a, a much better conversation, but um, outside of spaces like this, it seems like everyone is just kind of like playing this tribal game where, you know, oh, you're, you're, uh, you're against vaccine mandates. Like you're an anti-vaxxer, you're against science, you're this and that. And it's like, no, I think there's a much more deep discussion to be had about these things that, would be helped if we could actually have the discussion. Yeah. Or like you know? other kinds of preventive. I mean, I know I'm not doing an ivermectin, but like vitamin, vit- taking vitamin D, like low vitamin D has been correlated with some of the worst out, out um, effects of getting COVID, right? Like there are all mm-hmm. these things that we do know at this point that I rarely hear discussed. Yeah. Or like, or like uh, apparently multi-drug treatments uh, in the early stages of COVID, like the one that like Trump got an early, uh, an early treatment. Um like uh, not hydroxychloroquine. What is it? Monoclonal antibodies and uh, like with a multitude of other drugs. Apparently, according to some studies, that can help. That can lower the mortality rate by like seventy percent. I yeah, think. Well, Max, uh-huh. you're really you're really trying to get me canceled. But I I hear you. Like I don't. I literally <laughs> yeah, don't know sorry. which two or not. I I vetted the vitamin D thing pretty hard. <laughs> but the, yeah. but the I like that that is the problem. And I feel like there would be more confidence, like broader cultural confidence, if people did take conversations about those other kinds of interventions seriously like but then you just leave that whole field to the you know so-called crazies (laughs) and then you're mad that people that that more and more people are drawn to the crazy spaces because that's the only place you cannot get any kind of discourse about anything other than like just get vaxxed and boosted well i'm vaxxed and boosted but i you know have i have i have questions you know like I, i i'm curious about what else is going on so thank you max i appreciate you calling in yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for talking to me. I uh, appreciate it, Brianna, as always. Thank you. All right, take care. Eric Gray, my cousin is back. What's on your mind tonight? Um, not too much. Um, I can't help but think of um, uh, Richard Wolf's comments on this. 
Mm-hmm. Um, basically, this is this is literally class struggle, like in our face. <laughs> it, it's it's just you see the Trudeau government's response to this. Um, you see a working proletariat trying to stand. You know. Um, Eric, what do you say to the people who are like, well, most of the truckers that are strike are protesting are the ones who have owner operated vehicles. They aren't part of the, you know, they aren't actually the worker class of truckers. It's a very small percentage of truckers. They're being funded. 50% of the donations are coming from America. And most of it is like a handful of really rich donors and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, does any of that give you pause about whether or not this is a sincere kind of worker led movement? I mean, it might. It, it would definitely give me pause if there's like an ulterior motive from like elites or something like that. Um, well, don't you think that the uh, investment of these rich people? I think it can be both. By the way, I don't. I'm not trying to hide my cards here. I think it can be both being exploited by elites, and there can also be something that resonates with folks who are not truckers. Because you know, part of the discourse. I forget the numbers, but someone said in the episode that. A lot of people who are not truckers in Canada from all across the country are donating because they yeah. feel frustrations with Trudeau that are maybe sincerely rooted in a kind of a populist fervor. Well, it, we'll it, see, that's, yeah, go ahead. Well, we'll see. That's what makes that's what makes me go to the class struggle point because mm-hmm. when I'm when I'm seeing it be um, other people outside donating, I'm going, yeah, this is people who are in an other working classes feeling sort of this, sort of a similar pain, like in their eyes, it's a similar pain. Um, it, it just like, it feels, it feels like it goes, it goes to um, basic superstructure. Like it, it's just, I guess the Canadian government is responding to seeing like, in, to seeing like economic progress get stalled and it's like, well, that's that's a superstructure reacting harshly to that. I mean, you're over here freezing bank accounts, and um, you're over here free like keeping people from donating and also to um, truckers and whatnot. It's like what what the hell? I mean, it does feel like one of these moments where, and not to oh, people are gonna be mad at this, but sometimes the backlash gets you what you know really uh, lights the fire under your movement. So. Okay, you protested and the police hit you with water, you know, uh, attacked police dogs and fire hoses. Those images get blasted across the country. And suddenly you have a lot more friends than you had going into it. And it seems like in some ways that, you know, Trudeau has really poked the bear here. And all of that's like, like I said during the episode, there seems to be a notable, a notable shift in the coverage of these, uh, of this protest from the left. Whereas before was a bunch of just kind of murmurings about all oh, these swastika truckers are not real truckers, blah, blah, blah. And then once the Emergency Act came into play, there was a lot more um, kind of solidarity expressed among left media commentators about their you know, distaste for that aspect of it, even if there's still caveats about some bigoted aspects of the protest. I mean, it's, it, like I said, it's, it's basically basically lefties actually under basically those lefties in particular and just lefties period um that have common sense actually understanding class like like understanding the importance of class you can't just 
speak in an echo chamber all the time. It's just, it's just like, hey, even if we have problems with them, like as individuals, this is a class struggle. This is something like, it's like the censorship debate. It's like the go back cancel culture debate and stuff like that. If you let this happen to this side, it was eventually going to come back on you. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so yeah, it's it just it just goes back to that on principle. So, yeah, that, I hear to you. Me, Eric. That's really all is to it. I I hear you, Eric, and I appreciate that. Thank you for calling in. No problem. All right, uh, and now I haven't spoken to you in so long. I can't remember if it's Anna or Anna. <laughs> it's Anna. Hey, Anna, how are you doing? Good. Yeah, I got kicked off last time because someone turned on a Bluetooth speaker that I was connected to downstairs. Oh, no. So Sorry. <laughs> oh, no, I'm glad you're here now. What's on your mind? Um, well, I had a couple questions. Um, one of the so I, I only got to hear part of the episode today, but I heard one of the guests kind of point to uh, like Petite bourgeois, the petite bourgeois is being a big obstacle in organizing. Mm. Um, and I wondered uh, kind of what your thoughts were on that. I guess I have some thoughts too, but um, wondered what you thought. Look, when, when Jay in the Revolutionary Black Network folks talk about the differences and priorities that they observe because they feel like they're coming from a different class perspective, it would be so short-sighted and ignorant of me not to really hear that and really sit in that because I know I do listen to their channel quite a bit uh, because I feel like it challenges me in useful ways and their observations are astute and I encourage everybody to subscribe to their channel and like their videos and all of those things as well even if you find yourself disagreeing at times and I consider how difficult it is to break into the left media space I consider who is the most popular in that in these spaces and what their backgrounds are like. I get comments like, you know, you should have had a trucker on the show. And I think a totally, but also uh, how am I going to find a Canadian trucker to come on the show? You know, the, and someone on the Patreon was, it said that they were a trucker in like the episode. And I tried to invite them onto the podcast tonight and I'm reading his message. Now he says he's beat. He's had a long day, which, you know, respect. Um, <laughs> and you know, it's, it's, and I, and I'm like, well, why don't I try harder? Like, am I just letting myself off the hook? You know, you know, and, but, in, but that's wrestling with this credentialist part of my brain. It's like, well, how do I know this person is a good public speaker and is going to be interesting on in the episode and is going to be compelling enough to draw people's attention. And I can't sure, vet sure. them because they've never given an interview and they don't have like a website and all of these other kinds of things. And I, and I'm in this constant process of trying to figure out whether or not the metrics that I'm using are part of the problem. Yeah. So well, yeah, that's all about class. So go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> well, I guess like I guess I'm asking more like from a personal uh place because I um I'm surrounded by like you know, like when I was just hanging out in the city before going going back to school, it was kind of like around like artsy cool like radical weirdos or something and um and I started to feel really frustrated with their ability to dialogue around political issues despite being really performative about them now I'm in school thinking honestly I mean I went back to school because I just wanted someone to who would talk with me about stuff I was reading (laughs) Um, which is pretty sad and um and I'm finding the same kind of issues there like I find it really hard 
to um, find to, to be able to find people that are able to dialogue. And it, and it is and I guess I'm like pointing to it being kind of a more professional managerial class problem. And I've, I've read Catherine Liu. I, I like read her book and uh, watched her two Jacobin videos or however many. And um, and that was really helpful to put it in that perspective. But I see you as um, I guess I'd like as someone who's really good at that, <laughs> like I, and like, I'm kind of trying to be in dialogue with people, but just getting incredibly frustrated um, at, and, and feeling pretty hopeless, I guess. You think that I'm good at talking to the other PMCs? Is that what well, you're saying? <laughs> Cause let I me mean, tell you, if you had known me back in 2016, they're about to have to handcuff me and pull me out of that law firm at certain points. Well, you have, okay. Actually my second question, which I wrote down was just like how you stay sane doing that because I, I've heard your difficult conversations and like, you know, one of your um, more difficult interviews, um, you know, the de-radicalization was like, this is like so terrifying to address. Um, I mean, people like that are in my, like, I'm taking a diversity class this semester and I'm like, people are talking behind my back are not bringing up any problem they had with what I said in class. But like, you know what I mean? Like, this mm-hmm. kind of stuff is like so frustrating and um yeah and i guess i just wonder how you how you work through it how you like are able to reframe and like keep moving well for one i think that i'm insulated from some of it because so so much of the this context is about like privilege and race and all of this stuff right it's always in the background or in the foreground so like in that interview that you're referencing you know with with Talia i feel sometimes a comfort level and an entitlement to talk about certain kinds of issues because I am black. And when people are talking about instances of, you know, racism or prejudice, you know, I don't, I think that sometimes people get really, really agitated in a way that again, okay, I'm not talking about her. I'm just saying generally speaking, that is performative, (laughs) right? And it's that Uh performance that gets in the way of us having a real conversation. Like everyone needs to demonstrate that they really, really, really care enough. And my, my observation is that often the people who are most disconnected personally from those issues are the ones that feel like they have to assert how much they care more. They have to prove it more. And I think I've told that uh, anecdote on on this show before about how I have a couple of friends that I haven't spoken to since 2016 because they blew up at me because they're both from kind of rural white communities and were very adamant that Donald Trump was the most evil thing and didn't want to entertain any kind of conversation about how he might have gotten elected for reasons in addition to but other than bigotry. They just were not able to have that conversation. They just fundamentally were not because to to them, any admission that it could be anything else, it almost felt like they were being implicated and their whole families and background are being implicated. And they needed to show me that they were one of the good, they were the good white people, you know? Yeah. And so, and so I, so I, I want to I say all of that to say that sometimes I think it's easier for me because I don't have to negotiate that implication that I am a bigot because I don't care as much. Obviously people accuse me of that. Obviously Talia accused me of being a white supremacist. <laughs> sure. Obviously, we know the week that I just had last week, but I, I, I feel personally, emotionally insulated from it because I know who I am and it's fucking ridiculous. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, right. And then, then part of it is my mom always jokes. She's like, you're so patient on the podcast. I wish you were that patient with me. Is that a part of it is my performance, right? Like I'm, it's easier for me to be patient when I know the tape is rolling and if I blow up, it's there for perpetuity and I have to set a good example 
than in my personal life where I might pop off and not be my best self. So, you know, I want to be honest about that too. I'm not like walking around like mother Teresa all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if, um, I mean, surely being good at communications is helpful too. I mean, I think that in addition to like wanting to prove how much they care and like kind of perform that it's actually coming from like this fear that they'll be ousted or alienated, right. If they don't make clear where they're situated, because I feel that kind of anxiety because I'm not really a, a very on the internet person um, who God needs to you. kind of brand. <laughs> and I'm just not good at it, honestly. It just doesn't feel comfortable to me. Um, I'm skeptical and, that that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, I, I like can hardly speak on this thing with you. Um, <laughs> but I, like, I know that that's not true. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think there's that, that fear as well. Like we're, um, and, and I think that like not being someone who uh, is is able to really like be loud about that stuff and coherent about about it is um, put, makes me more vulnerable in a way. I mean, not boohoo me or whatever. I just I think that for everyone. I'm also thinking of because I'm I um, am a therapist at a like a university counseling center, and then some of the people I'm going to school with are not that far from the age of undergrads. I'm in my 30s. Um, but you know, there are people in their twenties that are deeply uncomfortable with like being unsure. Like, I mean, of course it's uncomfortable being unsure, but I think we're in a time where it's particularly uncomfortable to be unsure. So there's like all this pressure to be able to like proclaim who you are and to have like a really self-assured, um, demonstration of your inner sense of self, Mm -hmm. like right away. And so then, um, and so then you don't want to learn anything. And then there's a lot of fear around showing that you don't know or mm. having any kind of questions. So I guess mm. I'm like, I just sense that in, in my clients and in like, you know, the, this kind of the locked upness and in, in discussion in class. And I'm getting like, this is probably feels irrelevant, but I, I no, guess no, I'm no. just, yeah. Not at all. I, I was, I was listening to a TikTok or something recently that was saying that Gen Z both will like come up to you at a rally and get in your face and tell you why you're a fascist, but also is afraid to like pick up the phone and order food. Like, <laughs> you know, to, like afraid to talk to a customer service person, like because of the phone and all of the things and the technology and they're not having face to faces. And and that does seem to speak to me to your observation. There is this almost, you know, boldness that's required especially in the, to present yourself on social media and to have all of these opinions and to brand yourself in these ways, as you mentioned, but that interpersonal dimension of that, like how that works in real life, where it's not a one way expression of your interest, but you actually have to dialogue with someone and be confronted with sometimes legitimate critiques of the way that you've branded yourself or your identity or your beliefs. There does seem to be an, like a, I don't know, a discomfort with that. And people ask me all the time, oh, like, you know, how, how does what law school influence you? I don't remember a damn thing that I read at this point, <laughs> but I do, I, like, I do think that having to be, to, you know, having to defend yourself, you're cold caught in class, you know, having to come up with a reason, like a, a de- defense of your position, having to take positions that you don't actually like having to write papers in a way that engages substantively with the worst facts against your position is an important skill. Yeah, yeah, totally. And yeah, and I almost, uh, I don't know. I, I think maybe if I spent more, 
I don't know. I, I guess I'm like, how I try to handle it is when I'm like raising questions about identity politics or um, essentializing groups or something like that. I try to stay in my lane and talk about queer issues or I try to mm-hmm. talk about women's issues and not in analogy with other things, but just generally it's like the, what the cultural problems are. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, I guess I just, I'm feeling a little beat down by, <laughs> by uh, trying to talk with other folks. And, and so I that's why that. I, I feel encouraged by, um, uh, you know, labor organizing feels like it's just where I'm like kind of putting hope right now, even though I can't, I don't have a way to really be involved at this time. Well, let's look, we're going to figure it out. I've been feeling a little bit lost as well. And I was reminded that I haven't been going to my social social meetings and I saw one email come in my inbox like, oh yeah, maybe this is something that will help me feel grounded again. So maybe you can also find an organization that of like-minded people. So you can have a community of trust. So you don't have to like establish your bona fides every time you get into a new conversation with someone. Like that's part of the issue, right? Not having a community where you've had enough tough conversations that you can say something without like the 10 sentence caveat of, of course I understand and da 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 and you know. Right, right. right. <laughs> like I'm on your side. Like, can you just give me the benefit of the doubt? Can we have a good faith conversation <laughs> about that? Yeah, yeah. And I, I guess I feel like um, people want to, don't, don't always realize that they're preaching to the choir too. Like, I guess like, I always feel like I'm trying to question my own motives or where I like, you know, I'm, I'm technically, whatever, professional managerial class, progressive, whatever. And I guess I'm like, looking at what's around me and what everyone's assuming around me, and I'm being critical of it, because I like, think I should be. Um, And uh, everyone else is just like, saying the same things to each other. (laughs) I don't know, like, yeah. Yeah, well, look, I, I can tell from the kinds of questions you ask when you call in, how insightful you are and how thoughtful you are about all these things. And so I'm, I'm really grateful that you are trying and that's, you know, that's <laughs> yeah. at some level what we can do. We're all just trying. <laughs> yeah. Um, for so sure. thank you. And, <laughs> yeah. And bad faith's been I, your, your work has been really inspirational to me. So thank you. Thank you, Anna. All right. Sorry. You know, I know I've been going on for, with everybody too long, but you know, girls be talking What's on your mind, Sean? I do. I do like to have a little, a little chit chat sesh. Sean, can you unmute yourself? There you go. Yeah. Okay. So, I'm a really big fan of um, how independent media on the left has kind of like evolved, and I think done an underrated job of. Uh, doing their part in organizing and raising people's awareness on certain issues. And I think a a movement for a viable third party has a lot to learn from that. Um, I think this shows a great example of how powerful uh, being interactive with your audience can be. Mm. And like, just imagine if as a part of a presidential ticket, we nominated and elected 15 cabinet member positions so we could have Ralph Nader as part of our presidential ticket as attorney general. And all 15 members of your cabinet could be going around doing media rounds, speaking about every specific policy issue. I just, 
I feel like it's so easy to poll people and it's so easy to get people involved with the internet, with apps. Everybody's got a cell phone. I think that's the only way you can combat the power of those institutions and corporate money and stuff. Cause I just, I think you got to try something new and try to evolve and looking at things like, you know, it's the 1990s version of politics is, is like dumb and it's just not going to get us anywhere. Yeah. When you were talking about, you know, the team aspect of it, I was reflecting on this um, video. Uh, I wish I could remember this guy's name. I only remember his Twitter icon. <laughs> um, he's a video editor and he edited that Avengers clip of the final battle scene or whatever, but put everybody's, all the Bernie world folks' face on it, you know, back when we were all friends, you know, <laughs> all the squad members and, you know, campaign staff and, you know, media personalities and the whole Bernie world were, you know, Iron Man and, you know, the flying wasp lady and all of the things. And how it was corny, but there's something really sweet and cool feeling in the context of the campaign that it wasn't even just us on the campaign. There was this whole world of folks who had our back. And it would be nice if that <laughs> it did exist. And the, when the conversation with Jay, it really did make me think about how I don't, I don't have an organization. Like I, they were talking about politicians needing to have an organization behind them to support them. And I was thinking – like we all need an organization or a community behind us to support us and to think about what those organizations would look like when so many of us are in kind of traditional labor context and we're dispersed across the country. When COVID has people working, some people working from home, et cetera. So, you know, people have these jobs where they're in cars and trucks all day, very disparate from each other. And what that looks like. And I agree that there's something that's really magical about Colin because it does. I, I mean, I really look forward to these as evidenced by the fact that I let them go on for like three plus hours <laughs> um, because it does, you know, there's something that's really weird about the one-sidedness of it, of doing a podcast like this. And then only getting feedback from kind of the most <laughs> difficult, you know, posters you know, that aren't really representative of people as a whole and not having the most nuanced feedback. So I don't know how to replicate. I don't know. I mean, we used to have town halls, right? I guess. I mean, people have, people go to town halls, people have fireside chats, I guess, ostensibly. Is that, I mean, is that kind of what you're thinking of? With there's Sean, you still there with us? I don't know what happened to Sean, but I remember on the campaign when Bernie came to me and said, I wanted us to do a podcast, have one up by next week. I thought that the campaign podcast was going to be kind of like a fireside chat where Bernie had an opportunity to speak kind of more casually about any number of issues. And because it wasn't live or anything and it wasn't corporate media and he had obviously control over what got printed, you know, if he wanted to say, oh, I, I said that wrong, let me say it again. That was up to him. that would have been up to him, but it didn't feel like the campaign really appreciated what that could mean, like the benefit of that. And his schedule was such that he was rarely in the office, and that couldn't really happen. But you know, stuff would go down like uh, that kind of race uh, faux pas at the she the people thing. I remember thinking Bernie could sit in a room with me for an hour and talk about race with an incredible amount of specificity and nuance 
without any fear that he's going to say the wrong thing because he's just talking to me in a room. And we could put on an episode that demonstrated him in a completely different context that people would be attracted to because he's in control of his own message and his own channel and he can draw a crowd. And it seems really, you know, short-sighted for him not to take that opportunity. And I don't know what it was, if it was just a scheduling issue or if he didn't really know or trust me enough that I would be trying to help him through that conversation and not trying to set him up like, you know, I'm Joy and Reed or something. But I hope in the future some candidates see the possibility of that and we have those kinds of things happening. Thank you, Sean. Uh, Sylvester, what's on your mind? Unmute yourself, Sylvester. Hello? Hey, there you go. Long time, long time. I know, I missed you, Sly. What's I missed your life, too. <laughs> I missed I miss your life, too. Um, I've been uh, organizing, you know, this thing, this thing's a damn near full-time job sometimes. There's a brother out here, and you probably, you probably going to hear about it soon, so just, like, early March, look out for the Breakfast Club, okay? Um, oh. There's a there's a, a brother out here who got shot at 33 times by the sheriff's department. Um, he was unarmed, and they claimed that he had a a gun. All they found was a lighter, and then they also didn't have any body camera footage. But then they said, "Oh, he pointed the lighter at us, and that's what made us shoot this man 33 times." So. Yeah, we're going to, you know, you'll probably hear some, in, you know, and I, I think you should probably interview her, too. Her name is uh, Cerise Castle. She did a, a series, an editorial series about the sheriff deputy gang issues going on in L.A. County that got a lot of attention. And, you know, she going I think that's someone, something you should look into. And we're going to try to see if we can bring up some of the things that we were trying to do with defund the police, but get the end result with this. So it's something to you know, keep an eye on, but that's what I've been doing. That's why I haven't been gone. I've been sad because you've been really putting out some good episodes lately that I ain't been able to chime in on. So salute to you. You've been doing your thing. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I'll definitely look up. You said her name is Cherise Castle. I'm not seeing that. Castle like. Cerise. Cerise. C-E-R-I-S-E. Yeah. Cerise. Okay. I'm sorry. I put in Cherise. Okay, I got it. Yeah. All right. So so tell me tell me what's on your mind about this this week's this week's content. This week's content. Now we talking about today. Um <laughs> and I think you know what this I think that it, it ties into yesterday's uh call in that I got caught right before you know I was about to get called off. Yeah, I know I guess you had been on there for a long time. I know, I'm so, sorry. I had to nah. I had to go to the bathroom. I'm not you be doing marathons on here. You be doing marathons, so and hey, listen, I don't want you to get a UTI, so if you gotta go to the bathroom, go ahead. <laughs> go to the bathroom. I'm just keeping it in a stack with you. I'm just keeping it in a stack with you. You know, when a girl's gotta go, girls gotta go. Oh my god. You know? But um but then this this is what I would say because you know, while we've been out here you know, me specifically out, out this way. Um, there's someone who we've been organizing with that identifies as a, um, a communist anarchist. That's what they identify with and what mm-hmm. their position. I want to, I even want to kind of apologize because sometimes I feel like in the past, I've kind of gone on you about the electoral stuff and maybe like, man, why is she putting so much there? I, like, I get it, you know, but why is she putting so much focus on this electoral stuff? But they think the problem is with what we've been doing in terms of our organizing and it's very, I guess, unmilitant to do. But then we've been ceding space to our opposition. 
to go into the spaces where power is localized and centralized and allow them to take that space and say, oh, we're not going to we're not going to deal with that, mm-hmm. you know, because I'm not going to lie. I, I know you feel the same way. I'm looking at this trucker thing like now that, that ain't my fight. Mm-hmm. But y'all tactics. Mm-hmm. Oh, we need to do that over here. You know, I'm not going to lie. I'm going to be, you know, nudging, uh, what's your name? Astra with mm-hmm. the debt collective. Mm-hmm. I'm going to, you know, because she's talking about a little one-day thing with this student debt thing. I'm like, listen, if you really want to mm-hmm. do something with student debt, like, you, I mean, you really want to make a type of demonstration, it's got to be something that's longer than one day, mm-hmm. you know, and got or it's got to be something that disrupts it's economics. Whomst amongst us has a truck is what I want to know. <laughs> Electorally, 
I feel the energy with people who are tired of it and they want to do mutual aid and all these things. And that's fine. You go ahead and do that, too. But then you also need to be connected to people who are organizing in those spaces, because when we're talking about fixing the homelessness issue and, you know, we want to build housing specific to that. But then we don't show up to the planning commission and then we have certain zoning that's put in place for the next 10 years. And then you wonder why we can't build anything. Well, we didn't show up to the planning commission, Mm -hmm. you know. Or why they're increasing your local sheriff department or something like that, but you didn't show up to the public safety commission to show them that, hey, listen, the sheriff's out here anyways. Their clearance rate on clearing crimes, 47% on um, violent crime, and then 9% with property crime. Mm. That's an F mm. in both categories. And if you're pre- not preventing crime because y'all are claiming, even though it's not the truth, crime is going up. But then also on the flip side, you're not solving nothing when crime does happen. You're bad at your job, but no one is, we're not in those spaces, you know? So I, I just want to say I, I couldn't chime in, but I had your back on that. And I think that we need to take a militant approach in terms of how we have our inside outside strategy game. Um, and, uh, and then with the, with the Canadian, with the truckers and everything like that, if we really want anything, we got some ports out here. Too. We got some ports in L.A. Mm-hmm. We got some ports on the East Coast, too. I know there's you know, a big one over there as well. If we if we want anything, we really need to be having more discussions and really building an infrastructure around um, economically in negatively impacting mm-hmm. these these institutions, because otherwise we just. Justice, justice. Yeah, <laughs> I, I like your point. I, I like your bringing up the student loan um event because i do think that would be a wonderful test case for what this could look like especially since may day is the date that the moratorium is supposed to lift so um i know that i'm overdue to get back to astra about being involved in some of that organizing and i will get back to you guys with what is actually afoot and whether or not people perhaps in addition to and outside of the organization want to do potentially more than what the organization, what, what um, the, the debt collective is planning. So thank you for flagging that Sylvester. We got a lot of time. We have to organize around because the thing is, um, and you know, Fred Hampton said it and I believe it, and people have to be kind of grapple with that, with how far they want to take something, but you got to pay a price for peace. You know, you dare to struggle, you dare to win. If you don't dare to struggle, then you don't deserve to win type of thing. And you have to be able to risk some things. And we have to also, uh, you know, acknowledge the fact that if we're being allowed to do the things that we're doing, it's not a threat to the state or any of those institutions. It's just not. And that's why you see such an aggressive push on these truckers. Well, not I guess they weren't really all truckers. But on that protest, Mm -hmm. it went so aggressive because they were actually impacting something. They Mm -hmm. weren't just, you know, protesting for a day and then they got out the way. Mm-hmm. That's that's not going to get us to where we need to be. But you know what? I what I would like to see you have a discussion about as well with this specific situation. Um, are kind of expanding on it because I saw uh, Bree Newsom and I love mm-hmm. Bree. Whenever she tweets, I just love it. Mm-hmm. it just you know she you know I, I I put y'all like in the same tier. You know y'all cut. You know we call it cut from the same cloth in you terms know, I, of y'all. I, I, I love her. I I stay DMing her Brie to Brie trying to get her to come on the podcast, but I, you know I don't know how she's taking my hey Brie. 
I do it like every six months. So like I try not to be too extra about it, but I'm like, I, you know, I'd always love you on that page. Every and she six. She'll like the tweet. She'll like the DM, but uh, we'll see if I can get through. That Loki, like uh, that person that check in every holiday, but then it's like, oh damn, they are you are you hit up for Valentine's? They didn't say nothing. Then you hit up on Mother's Day. I hope your mother's doing well. Um, I mean, bro, I'm here. <laughs> say hi. Um, but you know what Bree said, and I just say, you know what? She right. She said that I I kind of come. 2022 is the year I realized that we ain't ready to be free. Like we, we, we're not at the place where we're ready to separate from this shit. And then like, she kind of gave an example. I'm just like, damn, she kind of called me out. I wasn't expecting that. So with this Fred, uh, cause the man I'm talking about that got shot, his name is Frederick Holder. Right. Mm-hmm. So I went out to the Super Bowl because I'm just like, I'm basically, I'm trying to help this family get pressed. So I'm going out to wherever the cameras are at. Mm-hmm. So people over there, I'm over there. There was obviously a lot of different protests that went on over there. Right. But then. I went from protesting outside of the Super Bowl to going back home and watching the halftime show. And, you know, you got, you know, there's, you know, billion, again, it's funny, you know, we displaced with building that state and we displaced so many people, mm-hmm. right? And at the same time, we watching on stage, we got people not even getting paid in prison suits, dancing, like, you know, and it's just like, we're really so caught up and invested that like the question we really got to ask us, like, are people ready to do the thing? And if I'm being honest with you, I know a lot of people are frustrated, but then we're not. Even when people are listening to the podcast yesterday or the calling yesterday, when people talking about, I'm going to withhold my vote. Most people don't vote anyways. Yeah. They're not concerned about you. They, they're not sending you a text message. <laughs> or yeah. to care whether you respond or not. So I think that's the other thing that we got to grapple with is that, like, have we done enough within our spaces, within our communities um, to even, you know, raise the consciousness for us to be able to do something like that? Because, and I'll stop well, talking well, at this well, point. Do you think this oh, is that class, that class issue again, though? Because, I mean, there's some people in this space that I feel like very much are ready. When I listen to some of, the, some of these folks... They speak with an urgency and they are doing the mutual aid and they are involved in their communities in a way that I have so much respect and admiration for. And they do seem ready. And is the issue that not enough, you know, too many of us are still comfortable enough, even with huge gaps between us, like too many of us are too comfortable enough. The basic standard of living, even a low standard of living is makes us feel too comfortable to actually do anything. And I agree with that. And this is this is what I'll say about the mutual because we had we were having this conversation about the mutual aid thing. Mutual aid is commendable. I do mutual aid from time to time. It, you know, but then also at the same time too, um, you're not going one. You're not going mutual aid your, your way out of capitalism. That's for one. That's just like the honest truth about it. And the thing is, like when you you know when you have it is problematic to me. And it's you know again you do what you do. This is community, so it's okay. But then you're only going to get so but so far if you have poor people helping other more disenfranchised people, like, keep their head above water. You know, you can only go so far with that. But the, but the thing is, is that what you also either if you don't want to do it yourself, that's fine. But you need to have relationships with people who are going to do it. But you know who would be really strong if we can get them in this organizing shit? Who? Soccer moms. Mm, why do you say that? Because, 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 think about it. 
the type of organization skills that these women have, and when they really want to get something done, they gonna get something done, and they showing up. They showing up to all the little meetings and voting and doing all the little things. Like you have to break through into that, like into because because you're not gonna. I was listening to a King speech. Um, where do we go from here? Chaos our community, and he was talking about how you're never. Like, people are talk about theory and we need to, you know, this direct action and we need to, you know, you know, take down the state and everything like that. And he said, that's not going to go nowhere in America. You know, like you, you've never seen any type of, you know, regime change unless like the mass majority of people had sympathy for the minority who are protesting, which right now it, don't, it doesn't appear that, you know, we lost a lot of that sympathy that we had you know, at the height of the George Floyd protest mm-hmm. and things like that. So we don't have that. And then well, there's on- still a million people who have died from COVID and all of these articles about the healthcare costs that have been incurred by people who have gotten COVID and been hospitalized and all of the stuff that existed when Bernie was running and he talked about it nonstop, 500,000, you know, uh, homeless people, which I'm sure is bigger now and all, all yeah. of the things that hasn't gone away, but it almost feels like we've gone back to feeling like it's impolitic to bring it up. You know, it's it, Bernie. Like I say this all the time. I felt like Bernie gave people permission to talk about all of the ways that they were suffering. And now the the narrative coming out of the White House is everything's fine now because they need us to believe that for midterm sake. And we don't have any of the sense of urgency that we had when Trump was in president. But it's still like the, the crises are still ongoing. So it's just a matter of us picking it back up again and feeling the confidence to talk with the urgency that like I always make this analogy to like talking about saving the turtles or whatever, you know, environmental things. Which, because, because people will make you feel like, you know, there's like these stereotypes, oh, you're so crunchy and green and you're so over the top about the cows or whatever. But like that, the world yeah. does really shame you yeah. into not caring about the last polar bear on the ice, ice flow or whatever. Like you, we are very much socialized to say there's a time and a place to talk. We all care, right? We all care. But like you're being extra. Like why are you talking about this now? It's kind of the prevailing <laughs> narrative. And it's one thing to feel that way about, you know, factory farming, which, you know, we should all care about. But it's another right. way to, thing to feel that way about human beings who are suffering. Every day. Nope. And who right. can vote? And, <laughs> and you, who have political um, power, ostensibly. But And people are apathetic. And, you know, and, and I, I know you was talking about it with somebody else about, like, you know, and I, I, you know what, honestly, I feel like I would rather have Trump in that White House right now than Biden. Because, like you were saying, you had lawyers that was going to the airport. Mm-hmm. You had people that was... Because, and King talked about it too, when he was going to the North, he was just like, yo, the North is damn near worse than the South. But then the way it's so pervasive and you don't really, you know, you're not able to see it the way as directly as you can in the South. It mm-hmm. puts people in this space where like, oh, it's like, it's, um, it's not that bad right now. Yeah. What are you complaining about? Um, and it's hard for them to, you know, really put their, you know, their eyes on the target. Um, so that's another thing that we have to deal with. But I think, you know, it what's really that's something that we have to do um, collectively. And again, even if you feel like personally you're not the person to, you know, go talk to the soccer moms or whatever and stuff, I feel like you need to be having relationships <laughs> with people who's going to be doing. Look, I, I, I don't 100% know about the soccer mom stuff. I'm not opposed to it, but, you know, the right <laughs> has their talents in a lot of these soccer moms. These soccer moms are trying to get teachers canceled every day. I don't know. You know, but parents. you see how they're doing it, though. That once they, if you activate yes, them. Sir. I am afraid of parents. I'm not even going to lie. Parents 
are vicious. <laughs> I am terrified. I don't even talk to my friends with kids anymore. I wait till the kids grow up. And they, <laughs> like it's too much. They have like you don't. I don't. I, I will have no opinion about your child or anything. I promise. I, I'll just be cool, Auntie. Let me let me buy the popcorn at the movie theater. Not that I'm doing that. But thank you, Sylvester. You've also reminded me to close this episode out with one of two Solange uh, songs from that 2017 album. Either Where Do We Go From Here, which is a banger. Or you have a right to be mad, which I think is largely the ethos we're going forward. We need to empower people to have their, feel feel entitled to be as upset as they should be. Thank you, Sylvester, and thank you for introducing me to, um, uh, sorry, Sharice, who we Charisse. already connected. Sharice, sorry, we just followed each other. We just connected on on Twitter, so I'll be following up. Thank you again. All right, that's love. Talk to All you right. soon. Talk to you soon. Take care. All right, Eric. The Eric that is not my cousin, as far as we know. Unmute yourself and let me know what's on your mind. <laughs> so first of all, um, I'm never following uh, Sylvester ever again. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> <laughs> Unfair. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was a really great conversation you had with him. He brought up some really great points. Um, so real quick, just to piggyback off of one thing that he said about mm-hmm. the uh, debt collective. Um, I, um, it'd be cool. One of the things I was thinking while he was speaking, it would be really cool if, if you ever in, get in contact with them again. Um, if I'm not sure if they don't have this already, but an idea would be to find some way to maybe a petition or to collect a, uh, some way the number of people with student loan debt who will be willing to, I don't know, do whatever action they come up with, whether it be not pay. Mm-hmm. Before you obviously before the what the May first deadline, mm-hmm. and show that to certain members of Congress. Like we have, let's say a million people who signed this pledge right now that they're willing to do this, mm-hmm. and use that maybe as some way that they to get someone in Congress as a way to come along with this. Like look how many people we have willing to to activate. If and you can probably even add more people if you join. That would just be like an idea. Yeah, Eric, I'm with you 100%. I, I raised this with Astra when she was on the podcast uh, around the holidays. Um, and I even at one point tweeted, you know, how many people would have to sign a petition of that sort to make you feel comfortable participating in a student debt strike? Um, mm. And, you know, there weren't that many respondents. I don't know how much you can take from that kind of a straw poll. But, you know, Astra's response was that because a debt strike is different than another kind of capital strike because they don't actually need our money. It doesn't, you know, disrupt um, anybody's ability to do business, disrupt the flow of capital. Like obviously we've all been on the moratorium for two years now that it doesn't have the same coercive effect. Mm. And I appreciate that argument, but I still think, I mean, like the, the idea isn't to say we're going to like starve the government of money until they have to act again. Uh, until they they cancel their loans. It's more a demonstration of how absurd it is that they're demanding anything from us in the first place because they don't actually need it from us. They have the ability to cancel it and it will draw national attention to simple facts that most people don't know. Like for example, that Joe Biden has the the authority to cancel all student debt. Have you ever, have you ever, Eric, heard someone go on cable news and say, Joe Biden has the authority to cancel student debt? No, I don't think that I have. I, I've heard I've heard people ask Jen Psaki and she gives a little run around and she's like, well, we're looking for the letter and people try to push back, but like not really. Like no one really says, no, he has the authority 
He's choosing not to do it. He promised during his campaign that he was going to cancel at least 10,000 plus 100 percent for all HBCU graduates. So what's the deal? Why has he broken his promise to black America is a question I would love to hear somebody (laughs) ask during Black History Month. (laughs) I would love that, too. But to uh, get back more on the uh, the mandate question, um, mm-hmm. so I'm someone who generally I am for, you know, vaccine mandates. I was definitely for the vaccine mandates, definitely when we we're dealing with, you know, the alpha variant and the um, even the delta variant, obviously with the Omni- Omicron variant that came along, that added new things to it and changed the issue mm-hmm. because the uh, type of, vi- because of the change within the virus and the mutation and uh, things that it did differently from the other two variants. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the things that even, like if you are someone for the vaccine mandates, what we have to uh, deal with is that it was the liberals that to me destroyed the uh, legitimacy of the mandates because it first started with Fauci lying about the mask. Mm -hmm. In the beginning, it also started with I just was watching Breaking Points uh, watching Breaking Point today, and they were talking. They did a, a segment on the fact that the CDC is purposely keeping back information of uh, research that they have. They like have all this type of research about the effectiveness of you know the booster and each different age group. Like they have like really detailed stuff, and they're not putting it out. And there is a lot of instances where there's information that they have that they don't put out because they do this thing where they're like, well, we don't know how the society is going to handle this or how the people are going to take this. And we don't want to put this out because, you know, it may make people against this part of the vaccine or do this type of thing. And my thing is, that's not your job. Mm -hmm. The job is for you to get the information and to give it us because when you hide it you just delve into this conspiracy theory mm-hmm. that destroy gives, the trust you know, of the institution exactly that mm-hmm. gives the most you know and one of the things that's the most dangerous is you give the more um because there are people who are these anti-vax people who i believe you know not every what's the word i want to use who would use that for there are anti-vax people who are using information for nefarious reasons there are people, I think they're on both sides. You have mm-hmm. people who will use information for nefarious reasons. So when you keep information like that, you feed into the conspiracy theory, you destroy the trust in institutions. Mm-hmm. What do you expect? So I think we have to own up to the fact that I think one of the most biggest damage was done by like, you know, these liberal administration and not, and no one ever calling them out. Like, yo, why say to see, why are you hiding this from us? Don't do that. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. That's what makes us there's a there's a relationship between that distrust in the CDC as a public institution. And I think the prevailing a, a kind of broader distrust of mandates insofar as there are people who say the same government who will lie to us about information about covid is a, the government that's administering vaccines and a government that wants you under its thumb and their surveillance state. And that's why I don't want to have this vaccine passport crossing the border. And you can really see how it's. A slippery slope. And yeah. some of the objections might sound reasonable and some of them might sound unreasonable, but honestly, it's incredibly subjective. 
And at the beginning of the vac- of the of the pandemic, there was all of this talk about how you know black people weren't getting vaccinated because they had distrust of Tuskegee, and we're going to be sympathetic to that and really explain all these safety measures and all of that stuff. But that sympathy has gone like right out of the door, and now anybody who's skeptical is a crazy anti-vaxer, and nobody is dealing with this these deep-rooted historical reasons that people don't like mandates for that reason. Like the part of my brain that's kind of um you know, a skeptic and a, uh, like a kind of a libertarian socialist is that part that was a history of science major in college (laughs) and who knows too well how badly these things can go. And why, you know, that combined with the feeling that people didn't try hard enough to get, you know, I, I do not believe we've exhausted our resources in terms of getting people compliant. Oh, I completely agree. Right. If we if we lived in a world where that we had been sending they would be sending like groceries to our doors like they've been doing in some East Asian countries and sending masks to our houses and tests to our houses and giving people money to stay home and all of this stuff and be feeling really taken care of, then it would be a different and, and we still were having a compliance issue, then I'd be like, Okay, we can have a conversation about the mandate. But we're like a million light years from that reality. Yeah, because one of the things that I also have an issue with, and we have to come to terms with this, is that it was no, the Delta variant and the Omicron variant was not caused by anti-vaxxers. Those variants, those specific variants, was caused because our greed government and the greedy pharmaceutical companies did not, well, I wouldn't even call call out the greedy pharmaceutical companies because they didn't have anything to do with it. If Biden had lifted the patents, and allow these countries to make those uh, cheap version of the vaccine, we probably would not have had mm-hmm. Delta or Omicron. So they didn't do what was necessary to stop mm-hmm. these variants. And it came out that it seems like they're reporting that that's exactly what the pharmaceutical companies wanted. The vaccines work, but they 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 don't want to cure it. They don't want to get rid of this. They like this is money maker. So let me keep making vaccines that work. And creep having these va- like Omicron to them is like the best thing that could have happened because it doesn't really kill people. Yeah. But it's super spreadable, but doesn't kill people. So people can still have to keep getting boosters and boosters and boosters. Yeah. Oh, I can keep making money, money, money. Yeah. And also to me, I think with Alpha, when Alpha came out and they once they reached that first block of hesitancy. Why? Like to me, if this is really existential, you really feel like threatened. To me, they should have paid everyone straight up $10,000. You got it right to $10,000. Anyone else who done? I'll give you $10,000 to take this vaccine. Yeah. But yeah, that, that's my thoughts on the whole issue. And yeah, also, might, for $10,000, I might be finding myself extremely vaccine hesitant, I must say. Exactly. <laughs> oh, you're not going to cancel $10,000 in my student debt? Well, I will 100% be taking that <laughs> vaccine, 10000 Because I think you would. Give them a certain level of money that will make that that's like maybe not life changing, but it's like ten thousand dollars to a family that's struggling. Yeah, ten thousand family that maybe not even a family that's struggling, but that's maybe on the cups, or even a family that isn't struggling. And you got what, maybe three adult three adults in your household. Mm-hmm. And you give them three people get ten that's thirty thousand dollars. Who knows what they can do with that money? But yeah, yeah, they I'm can do you. everything that they wanted. They they could have. I'm with, I'm a hundred percent with you, Eric, and I appreciate you calling in. No problem. You have a good one. You too. Katerina, you are up next and meet yourself and let me know what's on your mind. Hello. Can you hear me? 
I can. How are Hi. you? Hi. Fine. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. It's great to talk to you, talk with you. Um, I wanted to, um, I'm actually a scientist, but a kind of a dissident scientist. Ooh, uh, I'm, I'm excited about this. Tell me more. Well, I am, I'm not a dissident against science, but I'm a dissident against, I have a bunch of different things that I would like to say. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the most important thing is that I, I totally agree. I mean, I'm pro-vaccine, but I am not necessarily pro-vaccine mandate. Uh, I am, uh, I don't think there are studies about compliance. So if you want to achieve compliance with vaccine, there is plenty of work that has been done in epidemiology to what actually works. And mandates really don't work all that much. I mean, if your mm. goal is to achieve compliance, uh, people know that, that obliging people to do it doesn't really cut it. Mm -hmm. uh, education. I mean, there is so many things that, that should have been done in terms of really, like, if, if you want to be serious about it, it's about, you know, like educating people door to door, like going, hiring a lot of people that, you know, there are all these plans that we were, you know, we were talking about during the Bernie campaign about job guarantees, you know, hire people <laughs> to go yeah, door yeah. to door and explain and answer questions. Uh, because it is totally, I mean, this, I've heard um, Richard Wolf describe this. I mean, it is totally rational for people to be doubting about what the government is trying to push on us. Right. And, you know, the only, if you're serious about the healthcare of people, what you do is you answer those questions so that people will, uh, will actually start trusting you. And, um, and the other thing is, uh, you know, as you were saying, you know, um, you give everybody, you know, you say, uh, if you don't want to take the vaccine, then you have to stay home and we will pay your salary while you're staying home. We will, um, you know, you have to get tested to come back. So you offer solutions and you support people throughout. And, and then, you know, you end up getting much more compliant. So right. I, I don't, I don't really think that the goal was ever to get compliance. Uh, yeah. I don't really trust. Uh, I mean, I am, I totally hate uh, Biden and um, I didn't vote for him. I think, I actually think he's work. I mean, even the idea of a lesser of two evil, I don't, I don't buy it anymore. I mean, it's, it's actually, I don't think I'm it's a lesser you. of two evil. I don't think I, I literally you. don't think it's a lesser of two evil. I mean, what he's doing right now with Ukraine is getting us into to World War Three. Is that lesser of two evil? I don't think so. Th anyway, this is, yeah, no, I, I'm with you. This is what was so frustrating about 2020. It was so toxic. It felt so toxic, like like scary to say anything that was even giving you the whiff of an implication that you didn't think that Trump was worth worse than Biden. And in that context, when you know this podcast was just starting. I was writing an article over the summer about how we need to have some kind of litmus test and be willing to withhold our vote for Biden. Like even the Chomsky, the Chom the like now famous Chomsky episode, it didn't go viral, I think, because, you know, I was very gently and timidly asking Chomsky, qu Chomsky questions. I think it was more this idea that people were so 
like chagrined that I would even imply that no, there was, was so a viable. I mean, you, I'm, I cannot believe how much I was with you with that episode. I, I just couldn't stand Chomsky. I mean, he, he's like an old, I don't know. He's an old fart. I mean, I'm going to say that. <laughs> You know, come on! I mean, since he has, since he was, he's, he's been a, he's been a, uh, he's been a, you know, a dissident for a long time. But I think, you know, he has no contact with the working class. I mean, he has no idea what's going on, and he's. I'm not saying I do, but uh, he clearly doesn't. So I don't think we should listen to him. Anyway, whatever. But uh, I, I want to also get to the point of so about these tracker things. So you know. We have to be able to find a way to get on the side of the people when they organize. And like, well, I'm, I'm very much, I really always very much like uh, Richard Wolf's perspective on this. Mm-hmm. You know, even if you don't, uh, it's by organizing and by answering people's need mm-hmm. and answering people's questions even. Just ask the, answer the question, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Uh, you know, in a in a in a in a in an honest way, you know, it's not true that the vaccines. I mean, I'm pro vaccine. I everybody's vaccinated in my house, and I mm-hmm. I think it. I I can tell you more about why I think that is very important, even with Omicron, because mm-hmm. it actually cut enormously the the risk for people to get very sick, and also reduces mm-hmm. somewhat, not completely, the transmission. So, mm-hmm. I mean, the reason why we are not seeing enormous number of deaths right now with Omicron, which was spread like crazy, is because of the vaccine, by and large. Everybody that is, 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 most of the people, I mean, I've I've had first-hand account from friends and that are in the emergency room. You know, everybody that is is dying essentially is because it's not vaccinated. So, I mean, it transformed things completely. If we would have had a virus like Omicron that spreads like this, Mm -hmm. Without a vaccine, it would have been really crazy. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in, so you know, but we, we even, but this has to be explained. You know, you cannot just tell yeah. people you have to trust us, and and you're absolutely right. The New York Times, none of them are actually saying what's actually going on in a way that people can understand. And why are we supposed to to trust the pharmaceutical companies? Why are we so, supposed to trust the government? I mean, I think it is very complex and you have to sometimes say, okay, even though I don't trust the pharmaceutical company per se, I think the vaccine is saving my life. So I'm going to take it and then mm-hmm. I'm going to continue fighting against the pharmaceutical companies. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that if you agree with what they're giving, you're taking what they're giving to you, you, you agree with the pharmaceutical company, but it mm-hmm. is a very complex discussion and i don't believe that the government i'm from italy and the government in italy is very similar is now pushing everybody back to work Mm -hmm. and now they're removing all the masks and then as you were saying before you know oh you are uh you know the trackers are really terrible but you know we are continuing going to to i mean we are now opening up restaurants which is the place where people get the the most vaccine Mm -hmm. most virus Mm -hmm. is demonstrated and, but, you know, but uh, none of this is rational. None of this is actually do uh, 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 what the governments are doing is not led by uh, our the interest of people. It's led by the interest of the people that are making money, be them 
the the pharmaceutical company or the the or the employer that want people back to work or whoever but there and, and people know it people can take can get that yeah. nobody's looking out for them and so why should they trust them so yeah. our role as the left is to talk with the trackers, that to, whoever is organizers, we have organizing and do in doing something. We have to try to talk to them. We have to try to be uh, listen to them. Not more than actually before talking to them, listen to them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's. Some people were asking why I didn't have a trucker on, and totally. But also when you even try to find coverage of folks who've actually interviewed the the truckers, a lot of liberal media people have said, we're not going to platform these people. And they have, you know, affirmatively said they have no interest in talking to the people about why they're there. And so one of the few accounts that you can find, I mentioned this in the episode is this journalist who Bari Weiss published on her blog, who, you know, I, I'm not speaking to the kind of credibility of the report or anything, but it's, it's one of the only things you can find out there that has just, you know, a person who spoke to a hundred truckers and did a photo, you know, montage of all of them. And you get some sense of why they say they're there, whether or not you believe it, that's what they're saying. And it's so frustrating that, that instinct, you know, and this was a little bit what came out in the Talia interview, like to be curious about what's moving people is very quickly, it quickly devolves into an accusation that you are somehow sympathetic to the worst impulses that they might be displaying. You know, well, I am sympathetic with their plight in terms of their life having been destroyed by neoliberal capitalism. Yeah. I am sympathetic and I'm not uh, I'm not ashamed of it. Yeah. Whether or not I agree with, you know, they, they people are trying to find solutions. They realize they're being screwed. I mean, everybody now realizes they're being screwed and they're trying to figure out solution. Yeah. And they're not necessarily always, you know. But, you know, Harvard professors don't understand what's going on. How can we yeah. expect trackers to understand what's going on? I mean, it's like... It, there's and, such an information... It's an information overload almost is what it is. It's like a void and an overload. It's the internet and it's too much. And there's no, there's no like, good housekeeping seal of approval that can accredit streams of information anymore. Yeah, but also these people don't... Most, I would say the, the majority of... I would bet the majority. I mean, I'm, I'm, this is obviously my just my my hand, my sense, but they probably don't listen to NPR. They don't listen to the news. Well, the NPR don't is not helping you, I'm afraid. <laughs> like NPR is not helpful. That's that's the thing. Like, no, I, but what I'm saying, you know, you, you know, they they don't. So even at, so, where do where are you supposed? I'm not saying that NPR is good. Actually, I'm yeah. I'm saying the absolutely opposite. Mm. That is good. I'm I'm I hate both the NPR and the New York Times. With <laughs> I cannot. I am, absolutely cannot listen to it i cannot uh it is just i i think is actually m- even more dangerous than fox anyway yeah, i only turn it on to try to get some moth radio hour you know what i mean some good short stories <laughs> <laughs> yeah and uh but uh anyway so what i'm saying is that if you want to reach people that are organizing uh you know whatever they're doing you know whether or not they're being, you know, they're doing exactly what, uh, you know, the profession, uh, you know, our as super well, well to do, uh, you know, and well, uh, you know, educated people think they should do. We should listen to what they, why are they doing it, and then try to have a conversation. And the only way to have a conversation is if you show some level of maybe not res- no support, but at least respect yeah. enough to talk to them, yeah. to listen to what they're saying, you know. Yeah. 
I, I'm completely with you, but people don't like that. There, there's this, there's this way that you know, if you saw like a dying baby in the street, and someone said that's a Republican baby, <laughs> like that baby's parents voted for Trump. There's like a, there's a significant portion of people who will call you a fascist for trying to like revive it and give it medical care. That like. There, there's like a dumb version of a Republican meme. I saw this ad going around today that is apparently real where they basically flash photos of young kids on, on the screen and they're like racist, racist, born racist. It's like an anti-CRT sort of an ad that somebody is running and mm-hmm. that's obviously foolish. But there is a kind of sensibility that emerges in some parts of the liberal sphere, which basically says your your value is dependent on your kind of political worth your your political um good decision making and they just they just they just feel very comfortable writing people off um substantively if they are racist so that's that's part of what's coming up in the talia conversation right i'm like oh well just out of curiosity what else is going on in their lives and the idea that something else might be going on that is bad and i might feel sympathy for a bad systemic effect that is happening to them meant that I must also feel sympathy for their white supremacy, despite obviously being a black person who benefits in no oh, way the from Talia, white supremacy. The Talia <laughs> one was the person that was went underground. Is that the person? Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. but that was oh, so, was so fascinating was about it to me. Because she, she obviously did see that. Well, I thought, I thought that the reason one would go undercover is because you had the same kind of curiosity that I do. I misunderstood. The reason she went undercover was because she wanted to dox people and report them. Fine. That's her mission. We were on different missions. Respect. But that, that, that general feeling of like, you absolutely cannot have any kind of humanistic impulse towards someone. But that's wrong. I mean, it's, uh, sorry, that is completely not only wrong morally, it's also wrong, uh, you know, wrong politically and, you know, you'll never, I mean, and that is why I think, you know, liberals are not our target. I mean, we're not supposed to convince liberals. We're supposed to convince the people that have the actual power to do something about it. Liberals, you know, and we can call it bourgeoisie for what they're, for the actual, and I'm one of them, but, you know, we have never led anything, you know, it's, if we want to change something, this, we, it's, especially now, I mean, they're gonna follow. Even in the you know civil rights movement, it was not. It was led by people on the ground, not on by liberal whites from Newton, Massachusetts. I mean that's yeah. true, but also like Martin Luther King had a doctorate and grew up in a middle class family. I mean it's a mixed bag, right? Yeah, but that, that you know it's it's different. Different. It's different. Um, okay, when I'm talking about you know bourgeoisie, I'm primarily talking about liberal uh white people uh and they when when is the last time they've been they've led a movement i guess the the, the american revolution but then after that i don't know yeah well you you katarina you're gonna have to fight with uh sylvester about whether or not we need to get these soccer moms or whether we should abandon the soccer moms but i appreciate you calling it i really enjoyed talking with you today all right bye-bye all right bye-bye carol you're up next what is on your mind my friend Hey, Bree. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. I saw you I'm... deep in the queue an episode or two ago. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I'm not going to make it to Carol, but I'm glad you yeah. made it this time. I usually am like, oh, if, if, if it seems like the topic is a little too uh, deep, like yesterday, I was like, mm, I'll just wait. But <laughs> today I made it. Um, so a couple of things. Uh, one, I want to, I actually recently watched uh, Dope Sick. Uh, you know, the, it's a Hulu show about, um, 
the opioid epidemic and mm. um, why the Sackler family and how mm. the, like the behind the scenes of everything that they did. And I will admit that as somebody who is pro people should take the vaccine, I think that it is saving lives and all that. Mm-hmm. The details of how that uh, drug got FDA approved definitely put like a little bit of fear in me mm. around like okay do I want to keep taking these vaccines for an extended period of time like how do I weigh uh the consequences of that and mm-hmm. I do think that there there's legitimate uh concerns around wanting to take the vaccine at the mm-hmm. same time as somebody who is has near and dear people to me who have fallen down the right right wing rabbit hole uh some of their desire not to take the vaccine is not rooted in any real concern a lot Mm -hmm. of it is rooted in like a sense of identity and belonging to a group of people who are opposed to the vaccine Mm -hmm. uh which means those people are in many ways not reachable until you can pull them away from identifying so much with that way of thinking does that Mm -hmm. make sense no 100 percent. yeah and so i think sometimes when we have these conversations like it is important to say that there are legitimate reasons to be concerned but there's also too often i don't hear that specific aspect of it discussed in terms of saying like how realistic is it to reach certain people and then how do we think about which groups of people are actually reachable. Um, so yeah, I was thinking when Katarina was talking, actually that imagine we lived in a world, this is, I'm just talking about my ass, obviously, but imagine we lived in a world where instead of even just promising someone $10,000 or whatever for taking the vaccine, we said, okay, anybody who takes the vaccine and has outstanding medical debt will have the medical debt canceled mm-hmm. or paid for like just because what is it what, like fifty percent of all bankruptcies happen from medical debt? I think it's like upward of fifty percent of Americans have some form of medical debt at this point. So you're gonna you're gonna be hitting a lot of the. There's gonna be a lot of overlap there. Mm. <laughs> and no, maybe I do think medical some debt, people get, like mm, nah, I really don't trust it. <laughs> may, may, maybe, but to the extent that your concern is like these this farm these pharmaceutical companies yeah. are hurting me. This medical establishment is you know the albatross around my neck. Some they're like they're creating some relationship between taking the vaccine, which you see is benefiting these groups, and the fact that doing so will at least hurt them in some way. You know, cancel their ability to collect from you and mm-hmm. fill their coffers more. Mm-hmm. Psychologically, I find that to be deeply satisfying. That obviously my politics are what they are. <laughs> yeah. No. I now I get that more. So. Um. So my second point is really around like I wanted to um talk about this since the BLM episode and Mm -hmm. this question of identity keeps coming up and you know so often I hear people talk about how identity gets weaponized and so there's like this immediate desire to move away from identity but I feel like what's really needed to solve that problem is not trying to pretend that people don't come from different groups and look in different ways and get sorted into different categories as a result but to recognize like true identity and by that I mean like we really need to recognize that even within all of these identity subgroups there are people who hold views that are not 
necessarily leftist, but also aren't necessarily um, held because of some kind of internal whitewashing or some self-hate. So like there are, there are trans people who laughed at J- Dave Chappelle's jokes and they're not, they don't cease being trans people who love being trans because of that. There are black people who are conservative who come to those ideas for very specific means. So like mm-hmm. in my family, um, there's a lot of people who are very pro gun rights, but that's because I have a whole bunch of family from the South and who are very much like, oh, we needed to like arm ourselves to protect mm-hmm. ourselves from the KKK. And mm-hmm. so <laughs> we don't have this kind of anti-gun thing that other people uh, might have. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a, a lot of things in that space that I think people don't recognize. And to me, the solution is much more like we need to give our identity space to breathe um, and space for discussion. So when I think about the kind of Black media space, like if we had more hard journalism outlets that did investigative reports on like, okay, we've got students who are um, protesting the dorms at at Howard. Mm -hmm. Like those dorms didn't suddenly get that way. Mm -hmm. Like just because the Biden administration reneged on Mm -hmm. their, their, you know, financial commitments. Like Mm -hmm. there's a lot of stuff that's going on in the meantime. And that's it. And there should be journalists who are black, who care about those things, who are cultivating black audiences, Mm -hmm. who, can dig into that sort of thing. So well, one of the things Sean was saying was, I mean, there is this, there is this sense among journal, black people sometimes that you don't want to air your dirty laundry and right. that people don't want to do the investigative reporting that will draw criticism to an institution, especially if they feel like nothing good is going to come of it. There's no funding that's going to come anyway. And there is this kind of perverse way that, that, you know, I don't want to talk, can't talk shit about, Jim Clyburn can't talk mm-hmm. shit about Howard's management, you know, can't talk shit about, um, uh, what's her name? Um, uh, the mom from the Cosby show, uh, Claire Huxtable. What's her yes. name? Debbie Allen's <laughs> sister. Why am I doing it? Felicia Rashad. <laughs> Felicia Rashad's, yes. uh, trash response to the, the, the Howard kids' protest because, you know, mm-hmm. we got to protect the legacy of, you know, Claire Huxtable. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, I mean, and that I totally get uh, when you feel like you are, if you feel like your group is under attack, people tend to close ranks and, you know, mm-hmm. ignore intra-racial, intra-religious conflicts, all these sorts of things. Um, but I think the plan of action then is, again, not to move away from identity, but to like lean into like, no, we need to hold our own leaders accountable within our own spaces and not necessarily try to attach that that to specifically a larger class-based struggle, though I can see some merits to that. But I think that when you try and attach it to that, instead of talking about it in terms of, no, this is what's actually going to help our community thrive and do better. uh, That's where you run into conflict where it's like, you're telling me that we need to, um, again, air our dirty laundry in order to connect with a group of people who very often seem to to disregard our issues and tell us that we need to sit down and stop talking about them in favor of class politics. You know what I mean? So like that is, 
This makes me think, I wrote an article many years ago at the beginning of when I started writing articles. And this wasn't the point of the article, but it's this thing I had been thinking of that I shoved in there at the bottom. They hated when I did that. Um, <laughs> but I was making this point where people, we all have political, we ha- have a lot of different things that motivate us politically. And folks act, the, the reason why politicians get so, so confused, and I think some some media people and whatever get so confused is they just presume everybody else's priorities are their own. So this flattening of black people where black people you have to care about criminal justice reform. Well, I think, yeah, most black people care about criminal justice reform, but that doesn't mean it's going to be in the top three. Mm-hmm. The top three mm-hmm. very reliably into being like education, mm-hmm. uh, you know, economy and Business. whatever, the same three <laughs> things that white people like. The same right. three. It's like the, literally the same three things for every ethnic group in the country. Mm-hmm. Or or like in 2020, everyone's like, well, let's do more ads targeting black people. I'm like, well, what black people need to be targeted with is electability arguments to prove that your ass can beat Donald Trump. That's all anybody mm-hmm. cares about is if you beat mm-hmm. Donald Trump. And so sometimes I think, you know, like there was a caller who called in um, during the post, I think it was after the, the call in after the um, Thomas Chatterson, Chatterton Williams, Bar, um, um, Batya Ungar Sargon episode. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, it's like, oh, well, I don't know. We have to bring up like trans issues. It's divisive. I'm like, well, mm-hmm. you know, like you're doing it right now, but like, never mind that. <laughs> um, you know, even if, if you, and you made this point kind of earlier, like if you ask a trans person, like, what are your priorities? They may or not put, you know, housing higher than something that you might think of as the most identifiable trans issue, or they might put Medicare for all up there because that is a trans issue. Like housing Mm -hmm, is a trans mm -hmm. issue, but we don't frame things that way. And sometimes I wish that we would, we would ask voters, okay, not just what you care about, but how would you rank them if you were asked and then try to create solidarity around those kind of rankings, like rank choice voting. Cause what ends up happening is that you'll say, well, like uh, we shouldn't talk about this thing because it's so divisive. And saying it in that way makes everyone think, well, you just don't care about me. My issue is just as important as your, as your issue. Right. But if you ask that person in a different kind of a context, like what would you prioritize? Like what is your number one things? And we're all going to prioritize that together right now. They might not even say that the so-called trans issue or the so-called black issue or whatever the demographic group is. Mm-hmm. It might end up being Medicare for all without you needing to come out with your hands on your hips talking about, well, I don't think we should Why talk we about, gotta talk about the police this. or yeah. whatever. It's like, just, just like, stop talking about like. Don't say it that way because now I'm mad about that you don't care about defund the police. Like, you right. triggered me. Like, how about we just have a different approach to the conversation where we say, like, I respect your commitment to defund. I respect your commitment to Medicare for all. or I respect your commitment to whatever your specific issue is. Let's put our heads together and, and do some analysis of what's most viable, what's most popular, what we can push through Congress, what we can do without legislative action, what we need in the short term, what we need in the long term, the exigency of very various communities, how close is someone to death, how much is this something that we can wait on, how much is the environment something we need to act on now, and agree on things not based on throwing each other under the bus, but because we, we do kind of because things are so bad and this nature, the systemic nature of the crisis means that we are going to come to some pretty good agreements. And I think that's what we saw under Bernie where everyone was pretty happy with Medicare for all being the flagship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And it wasn't Bernie true. saying, yes, Medicare for all, and we're not going to talk about trans issues, you know, mm-hmm. like that's just not necessary. <laughs> um, so last point, is, mm-hmm. it'll be really quick, uh, is a couple, 
think it was Sylvester, but like I've heard this before where it's like, oh, well, you know, if they're allowing you to do something, then you're not really doing something that's radical enough to actually change the system. And listen, I think that there's something to be said for like if if they're allowing you to protest in a very specific spot and, you know, you have hours and, you know, you're not disrupting anything at all, then obviously you're not doing much. But sometimes I hear this and I'm like, people, I, I feel like some people get so deep into these things where it's like suffering for the cause is more important than actually getting the thing done. So it's like, oh, we, um, the only things that will be radical enough to change the system are things that get shut down immediately. And so it almost seems like the only way to be effective is to be completely ineffective at getting anything done. Did you see what I'm saying wrong? (laughs) There can be a, a somewhat demoralizing aspect of that rhetoric where it's like, it's tautological. It can define itself out of, you can define yourself out of ever doing anything yeah. Yeah. I, I, I hear that. I mean, I, I think that we would have to be more specific about what we're talking about. Cause someone like Jay might say very specifically electoral, you know, you're never going to be able to be able to pass something past the legislature that's going to meaningfully impact the system. And that might be truer than saying a protest won't impact the system if it is legally permitted because that could lead to something else and it could lead to visibility and you could Mm -hmm. during that legal protest get some overreach by the cops that sets off a firestorm of backlash against the police state you know like there's a certain uncertain quantity there that makes me feel like everyone should try everything all the time including legislative efforts right yeah but but i hear you yeah yeah And I think it really just goes back to what one of your first callers said, which is that we just need to be more open to different um, tactics instead of judging tactics because they don't meet our personal standard of radicalization. And I I get, again, time is limited and, and, and attention is limited and people are really trying to buy to get other people on their side so that they can do the things that they, they think are going to work. But man, I don't know. I think about these things. I'm just like, man, we need resources <laughs> because yeah. that that's really what that is. Is like we no one has any resources and we need people to believe very deeply in our specific strategy in order to feel like we can move it forward. Whereas, you know, if we had some money and we could just hire a few people, <laughs> I know I'm, I'm always on the business tip. But no, yeah, I, I, I appreciate thoughts. that. I yeah. also wanted to before I forget, ask you, Carol, you had recommended something about NFTs to me and I wrote it down somewhere oh, and I couldn't find it. Well, <laughs> What was the name that YouTube I have to watch? It's like 15 hours long. It, it's line goes up. I was really trying. I was like, I was not going to bring up crypto at all. I'm just going to leave her alone. Crypto. On that subject. Well, what yeah. was it called? No, I was invested in the other day. I was, I was like doing a task where I could have been running it in the background mm-hmm. and I couldn't remember what it was. It's called line goes up. I think it's at like 5 million views. Line goes up at this point. Yeah. Line okay. goes up. All right. There it is. Yeah, By it's... folding ideas, I think. I got it. Like all right. Yeah. Thank you, Carol. I appreciate no it. Always Have a good night. Hearing from you. Have a good Bye. night. Now we are at to the two hour, nine minute mark. You know what that means? Cats and kittens. I think I'm going to wrap this up and go and get some groceries, maybe a little bit of a sweet snack, a little plant-based ice cream. Am I right? No one else has a dairy issue. 
At any rate, I want to thank all of you who did so many excellent clips from the last couple of episodes. Some of you are like real all-stars and I've been pushing them out. There were so many that I was like, I can't even push all of these out because my timeline is about to get mad at me, but I'm going to keep, keep going dribbling and drabbling because I mean, so many people listened to them and responded to them. And I think it piqued curiosity about the kinds of conversations we're having here, which I think are so rich and so meaningful. And you all are so fabulous that I really appreciate every single one of you who did a video clip. Those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, one of the cool features of this app is that you can, there's a transcript that gets created when I post it and you can go through and find the minute or two where a point was made that you liked or where you were talking or whatever it was. And you can create a little sound bite that automatically generates when you download it to your phone, a, um, like a, a transcript on the bottom. So it's like a little like video that you can then post to social media. Um, an audiogram is sometimes what they call these things, but it makes it very easy to share audio content in a way that can be very difficult. You know, you listen to a two hour podcast and you're like, Oh yeah, friend, listen to this. And no one wants to commit that long or search for the 30 minutes or whatever, the 10 minutes in the middle that you thought was really compelling. This helps you out in that respect. And I really appreciate those of you who've done that clipping work um, for me. Uh, we will be, of course, back here on Thursday. It will be an episode about Ukraine. I promise to know something about Ukraine before that episode airs. Um, the interview will be with, well, maybe I should hold that, but it's a foreign policy guy that I think you guys are really going to like. And I'm going to try to represent all of the views on this issue that have been percolating around the left. If there's something in particular that you think I should read, feel free to at me or drop it in the notes to this because I want to um, faithfully represent all of the takes that are out there. It's a rapidly changing situation, I know. So we will be recording the day before Thursday episode to make sure it's up to date. Looking forward to seeing to you, seeing you all then. And as always, Take care of yourself and keep the, God damn it. I had this video all cute and I think I got rid of it to search for that YouTube clip. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to get this for you because I really feel like part of my project um, is educating you musically. I take the end of our episodes on Bad Faith very seriously the musical cues and the fact that I'm able to do this without copyright strikes here is very meaningful to me. Okay, here we go. Take care of yourself and keep the faith. Too close.